seeing the future. It is, as I've said before, hard, very hard to be a Christian. And there are many ways in which it is hard, but I focus on, want to focus on just one, which is illustrated by the reading I just did in, from Jeremiah today, and more on Jeremiah in a moment. Another thing that's hard is seeing into the future. No matter how much we try, no matter how much we want to see what the future holds for us, we can't really do that except in a very limited fashion. For instance, I can tell with, with some degree of confidence that there are several folks in the congregation today that will, if they haven't already, be taking out their cell phones and either surfing the web or reading text emails or some form of social media. I can also say with some confidence that this sermon will have an unknown length no matter how hard I try to time it so that it ends at a set time. Many of you from experience and prior observation can likely come up with similar prognostications and be reasonably confident of their coming to pass. But that just takes care of the immediate future for activities that we have been generally a part of in the past, that are part of our schedule of activities and routines. What about a bit further into the future? Those of us who are still in the workforce can assert that we'll probably go to work tomorrow morning, more or less on time. But again, these are all fairly mundane predictions. Predictions that, that while a part of our lives are not as interesting to us in general because of their degree of familiarity and predictability. What we really want to know are more of the unusual events, the events outside the realm of our everyday lives, the seemingly sudden disasters, the shattering of hopes and dreams, or the coming of joy into our lives. These are things that mankind throughout the ages have passionately desired to know about beforehand. Victory or defeat in war, success or heartbreak in love, the span not only of our lives, but the span of the lives of our friends and family. These are the questions that burn in our brains and that we seek to find answers to. These are the questions that past our past ages have struggled and strive with today. And it's a struggle we're pretty much doomed to lose. Each of us carries the means to see a minute, maybe an hour, maybe a whole day into the future. But the exceptional events will always, almost always, elude us. And it is a hopeless task to do otherwise. Hopeless, I said. But for one very important thing, the mercy and grace of our Lord. So let's get back to Jeremiah. In the passage I read earlier, the prophet Jeremiah has been detained. He's basically in jail in Jerusalem, put there by, King Zedekiah, by the king of Judah, it's King Zedekiah. And then one day this visitor shows up to see Jeremiah, and it's his cousin, 
Hanamel. And Hanamel approaches Jeremiah, and he says to him, such a deal I have for you. You should buy from me the land I own over in the land of Benjamin, not far from here. And because, well, because you're family and have the right to buy it, I'll let you have it for a good price. Such a deal indeed. And I say that because you need to understand what's happening while Jeremiah is detained. What's happening in the kingdom of Judah at that time is that the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II, has surrounded and laid siege to Jerusalem, Judah's capital. And this is about in the year 587 BCE, before Common Era, what we used to call BC. Unfortunately for the people in Jerusalem, this is the second time within about 10 years that Babylon has laid siege to the city. <clears throat> The Temple of Solomon in the last siege, when the Babylonians entered the city, they looted the temple, so all the treasure was gone, and they carted off a really good large part of the population back to Babylon and other points as slaves. After that first siege, King Zedekiah had been appointed by Nebuchadnezzar to be a vassal king to Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, he was directly controlled from Babylon. Now, Zedekiah, being probably an ambitious man and was already a king, decided probably at some point that he would rather be an independent king. So he made a treaty or truce with the Egyptians to fight the Babylonians. Well, of course, that didn't turn out well because Nebuchadnezzar decided this is not a good thing, and he sent his army back to, Ju to Judah and to Jerusalem and laid siege again. It was during this second siege that Jeremiah starts to preach his message to the people of Jerusalem. Essentially tell them, hey guys, don't even bother trying to defend this city, it's hopeless. God himself has raised this army to overthrow the city and carry all its people off to be slaves. But then he added the caveat that God had also promised that the people of Jerusalem would be eventually returned and the land restored to them. However, that first part is probably what most people of Jerusalem believed or thought and got angry over. So this angered most of the people of Jerusalem, probably, and the king of Judah, Zedekiah. So Zedekiah had Jeremiah arrested, held prisoner in the court of the guard with all the other political and criminal prisoners for the duration of the siege. But then this odd thing happens to Jeremiah while he's in there. He writes that the word of the Lord came to me telling Jeremiah that his cousin Hanamel, I mean, it was a really specific word from God, saying that his cousin Hanamel would come to him and offer to sell Jeremiah his land with the full description of where it was and that he wanted, had the right to buy it and so forth and so on. And this is exactly what happened, of course. But the kicker was from God, God said, buy it, buy it. 
Now, I'm not much of a real estate investor, but it does seem to me to be the height of foolishness to buy a piece of land in an area that's under siege by an invading army, um, where the largest city in the land is likely to be destroyed, thus destroying most of the legal records of the land, and where the majority of its people will probably be carted off somewhere else for the unforeseeable future. It's a really bad idea, unless maybe you are a member of the invading army. Never know. Furthermore, what were the odds at that time, as far as Jeremiah and anybody else knew, that Jeremiah or any of his descendants would actually survive the siege, or survive the slavery, or survive to return to reclaim his land? I mean, Jeremiah's life, because of his activities was likely to be cut very short when the city fell. He'd either be carted off with the others or killed by either Zedekiah's agents or by the Babylonians. And also you've got to think, why did Jeremiah's cousin want to sell the land to Jeremiah in the first place? Well, the obvious answer is he wanted to get rid of it and make a little money while he could, even though he probably wouldn't be around to use it. And we, but we have no indication that he believed Jeremiah's prophecy. So another possibility is that he was trying to do a put-up-and-shut-up message with Jeremiah. Or since Jeremiah had loudly and continuously proclaimed that God had promised to restore the land to the people of Jerusalem in the future, maybe his cousin was trying to trap him. Because if Jeremiah refused to buy the land, that put lie to his prophecy. He had no faith in his own words. But if he bought the land, well, yeah, maybe there was something into his message. Maybe he did believe it, but maybe he was also just a crazy man and, or a fool that many people in the city thought him to be. So, whichever, let him waste his money on something he probably never set eyes on again. But, the important part here is that Jeremiah believed that God had told him about this land and had told him to buy it and told him why. That land would be bought and sold, that would be bought in this country again. He was shrewd enough to realize that apart from displeasing God, that if he, if he didn't buy the land, he would at least be setting this consistent example of actions matching his words. And who cares if people thought he was crazy? Let them think what they wanted. He had faith in his God, and that was enough to get him through, get through uh, that through him the people of Jerusalem would be returned and restored to their lands in the future. So what did he do? Yes, he bought it. He handed over the money, had the contract signed, witnesses, witnessed. And then had a copy of the deed made and sealed into a jar, which was a common way of sealing records at that time. It kept the elements out. It could be buried. It could be stored somewhere, you know, more than likely 30, 40, 50, 60, 120, 120 years later, the document would survive. We had the example of the Dead Sea Scrolls, where for thousands of years, things sealed in jars had survived. The point of this is, or one of the points of this is, is that he had that much faith in God that he bought that land. 
and that he had been, looking at it another way, he had been granted a significant look into the future by God. He had heard that promise made to him by God that not only would the land be restored to the people of Judah, but that houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. He believed that that little glimpse into the future was genuine. And not only did he act on it, he made sure as many people as he could reach heard it. So how can we look at the promises that God has made to all of us and not act upon them ourselves? Why would we allow ourselves to fall short of Jeremiah? We're not in jail. We're not held captive. We don't have our liberty decreased in any way. Why do we fall short of Jeremiah's faith? Why can we not emulate Jeremiah's faith in what God has promised us? Since we cannot with any degree of certainty beyond blind chance of predicting the future, we have to let our faith in God and the message brought by His Son Jesus help us as we move through our lives. The future is in God's hands. We have to trust in His message of hope and mercy and love to get through whatever the future hits us with. And that, my friends, is one reason it's hard to be a Christian. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. It's a fact of our lives. But we have God telling us to be comforted because He is always with us. And between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they fill us and sustain us when we need it. And we do need it. We need it all the time. I mean, while most of us know that we need it at times when things are hard and things are really, really difficult for us, and we know that His love and mercy is there for us to take and to draw on, we need it just as much in those times of absolute transcendent joy. Because it's only by the work through the Holy Spirit that we can recognize and accept those gifts from God. And then realize how absolutely fortunate we are. Because we have this relationship, this promise from God. And remember His promise. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's eternal life and God's love for all of us. That is what we need to keep, in our, keep our hope and lives together. That is what we need to be able to walk along the path of our futures with our heads held up, ready to show God's love through our words and actions in this world. That is what we need to hold on to our hope for God's salvation of us all, that we will be restored to God as the land was restored to those who lived in Judah and were carted off as slaves. God's hope for salvation is real, and it is for us to join with God at the last trumpet sounding.
And that is the hope that we need. In nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen.